and welcome to Rationality, a brand new podcast where we three gentlemen of different political persuasions meet every single week to discuss the big stories from around the country. We want to exchange views, not insults, and try to make sense of it all while still having a little fun. Okay, so let's introduce the fellas again. So sitting here with Guy and Deepak, remotely of course. So Guy, what have you been up to in the last uh, last last seven days since we last spoke? Uh, well, it's not been the most exciting week, but I, I have been working on an interesting insolvency uh, essay to do with... Um, oh gee, I've gone, I've gone on the title now. Oh yes, that's right. It's, it's to do with two former cases on uh, Chris Close Investments and Spectrum Plus whether or not they are doing disservices or services to creditor interests. <laughs> well, I mean, I understood about two thirds of that. Um, and those are mostly the linking words. So <laughs> it's, it sounds it sounds fun. What about what about you, Deepak? What have you been up to? Uh, nothing as exciting as Guy. Um... <laughs> well, <was> pretty dire. <laughs> yeah, just the, just a bit of marking and second marking of assignments and cross cross discipline marking cross cognate marking to make sure everyone has parity on um, how the students are doing verification processes and exciting things like that really oh well um, apart from that not much else next to that uh, gosh <laughs> i i mean i've i've been attempting to save businesses and money on their energy supply so <laughs> i feel thoroughly <laughs> inadequate um okay well let's let's get on with the uh, let's get let's get on with the pod so as part of the budget announced a couple of weeks ago and some more details have come out around the government's plans to increase the spending on Britain's nuclear programme, there's been a lot of debate about that. And, and you know, my, my position is that we're effectively saying that there's not enough money for lots of other things that we want to spend money on, but also spending a lot of money on something we hope we will never use. Guy, as our, as our sort of pocket government spokesperson... <laughs> would you like to would you like to come in and, and um, explain why the government might be doing this? It's a really tricky one uh, for the government, particularly because we've uh, only recently been signatories to the proliferation treaty. Nonetheless, I do think there are good reasons for bringing an increase in nuclear weaponry in, in the interim. Um, and primarily for two reasons. Firstly, I think um, nuclear power and hard power as opposed to soft power actually uh, can be very important in for uh, trade deals um, and other economic um, uh, generally one's economic position in the global sphere and uh, along with other geopolitics and the reason being is because people take strong countries more seriously look at russia right they have a smaller economy than portugal which is fairly ridiculous when you look at the size comparison but they are still taken seriously on the geopolitical stage because of their uh, nuclear weaponry and conventional power. So this is actually a seriously important part of our future economic development, ironically. So partly the spending it will help with uh, future investments. Secondly, it's not like it's a non-worthwhile thing, even as far as we don't hope to use nuclear weaponry. Um, partly because actually it's more likely that other people won't use nuclear weaponry so long as you have uh, a level of a nuclear deterrent yourself. Um, and so insofar as you have international deproliferation, it needs to be done at an equal parity between nations. Based on what guys just said, Deepak, do you think then that this potentially could be viewed as a response by the government to a weaker trading position due to other decisions and policies pursued by the government. Do you think this is their way of 
sort of bridging that gap between the uh, sort of global political influence that they might have that we might have benefited from in the European Union. Do you, do you think there might be an argument to suggest that um, they're trying to br- bridge that gap with regard to increasing their political and uh, economic ambitions? You could argue it plays a role. I mean, obviously, a big element of anything like this despite what anyone thinks, I think there's always an element of posturing and flexing your muscles. How far these are necessary, it's hard to say. And I and I do, and I think Guy has a really good point there as well. I, I do agree with what you're saying, the Hector, in terms of how much of this is in terms of how we're perceived based on what's happened over the last four or five years with Brexit and things around that. But also, the other side of it, we have to remember, it, it was in early 2019 or summer 2019, I don't know if you guys remember this, but the US and Russia both, uh, they backed out of a, of a nuclear treaty that we used to have. So they backed out of the medium range, sorry, intermediate range nuclear treaty. And that was the actual last Cold War agreement we had. So that obviously, we're in a world now where there's a little bit of uncertainty for all sorts of reasons. The two biggest superpowers have backed out of a treaty that's existed for how many years, which is the final cold... That was the last Cold War agreement that we had. Okay, and I don't know if you guys remember, it was called Operation Skyfall, and there was a there was a spillage in, in a part of Russia that contaminated the water. Some Russian scientists actually died. I think five or six Russian scientists died. Putin, around that same time, released a public video saying the purpose of that missile was actually for the United States of America. Okay, so we have to put things into perspective here as well with that. Uh, yeah, I just it's a fair point about the relationship between the West and Russia. Uh, but I think there is a danger in in retreating too much into our considerations of the status quo in that old uh, post Cold War situation, because I think really we're we're now entering into a much much more difficult situation where we also have the input from China, and I think really that's uh, certainly in the next ten years, maybe fifteen years, that's really going to going to change a lot of the geopolitical status quo for a number of countries. Um, And really, I I think China will pose the same sort of existential threat that the USSR used to do for the West. And it's necessary to respond to that. So at least we're on parity levels before we can then start withdrawing from from that danger zone. The world is a different place now. (laughs) Guys, absolutely. And the world is not the same as it used to be. We've got cyber warfare, which is you know, that's a new threat. Um, we've got an issue now where we have um, regimes around the world who are who run countries that are less well off, but they're very determined on things such as this. OK, so you've got North Korea, um, which are quite happy to threaten superpowers with the nuclear war. You've got two rivals, which I think sometimes we forget about, uh, India and Pakistan, who both have nuclear capabilities right now. Um, and that's been tense for a very long time. Um, so, you know, the world is a different place now. Um, and even if you strip back the examples I gave there of regimes that are determined and not necessarily as well off as other places, we actually at the moment, and this is the thing that worries me the most, we actually have no mutually binding arms control agreements at the moment. <laughs> there are none. To qualify that comment, then, is, is, that, is that a relatively new development? Have we always had examples of disarmament treaties then? The last time we had no mutually binding arms control agreements was just before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, blimey. <laughs> OK. Although we were party to the um, 
nuclear arms proliferation treaty. It's not binding, as you say, but the British government was making very good steps uh, to keep it, to keep to that agreement where reducing their nuclear arms. And so I, I would say that one of the problems for the current government is we seem to be going turning our back on another treaty again, which when one needs to build up strong alliances across the globe, if you're doing that on the regular, it doesn't look good. Um, so uh, you know, we, we do we do definitely have an issue in, in, in that regard, uh, whether or not, and I think it is, it's necessary more broadly geopolitically, it's still makes it a difficult decision. So um, Deepak came in uh, and earlier in, and sort of talking about cyber security and cyber warfare. Now, really, if we're going to be spending money on defending ourselves, we're, you know, we've, we've all kind of acknowledged that we are in a new age. Perhaps in the correct response to the new age is, is recognising that this is probably, if, you're, if you refer to previously Iron Ages, Bronze Ages, uh, Stone Ages, <laughs> this is the Data Age. Yes, indeed. The Integrated Review, I think, rather took that into account. Um, and I think you'll find that a lot of money was taken out of conventional weaponry. We had a reduction in, in old warships, uh, binning of a lot of tanks, a uh, much uh, smaller amount of uh, future recruits into ordinary uh, army brigades. We're now, instead of having a growth of a new uh, special forces brigade, what they're called the Rangers, and they're also putting a lot of money now into filling out a, a much stronger data protection and cyber warfare unit and space as well. Deepak, how, how do you respond then? So Guy obviously feels like, you know, that is already taken into consideration, but, you know, it's a lot of money being spent on something we hope we'll never have to use. I mean, ultimately, when you phrase it like that, you know, it, it does sound a little peculiar. What do you think? The amount they're going to spend on this is increased. They're increasing it by 2.6% above inflation. So, you know, how are the nurses feeling right now? That's the first thing I'll say. I mean, what's just happened over the last couple of weeks, and I know we talked about the nurses last week, um, that this is going to increase by 2.6% above inflation. Okay, that's the first thing. Um, secondly, I'll use, an, I'll use an example that has an impact on me over the last week. Um, so there was an announcement um, last Wednesday or Thursday from UKRI, which is the UK Research and Innovation Department, it was a very sudden announcement that they were going to slash their budget. Okay, so they were going to halve their budget from 245 million to 125 million. Now, this will actually have an impact on 900 projects. Now, this ranges from NGOs specializing in conflict resolution in Kosovo, Palestine, um, supporting disadvantaged women across disadvantaged women across numerous countries, and bringing those organisations together towards one common goal. Now, on the same day that this news came out. I got that announcement on my email and then I'm thinking because that is a government department and they're slashing that by half and this relates to Guy's point about soft power um how much are we what is the balance like at the moment between soft and hard power and what we can actually do with other countries through other means rather than having these deterrents and things like that so that that's an example that's affected me over the last week and that kind of you know that offers some perspective on why some people might be frustrated at the moment I tell you what, before you come in on that guy, um, do you want to define for us soft power and hard power? And essentially, the way of dividing the two is you can look at hard power. That's essentially con conventional forceful power. So mostly military, um, also es espionage um, and, uh, and probably cyber warfare now, whereas soft power is cultural power in the main. 
Um, so that's the image of a country, its history, its culture. So it can range from anything from the monarchy to McDonald's. It's, it's a very broad ranging thing, but can have a lot of influence in other countries. Okay, so that's, that's the difference. So coming on to Deepak's point about a, a effectively what it's a sort of soft power government ministry um, being slashed, but then us leaning quite so heavily into hard power then. Um, you know what does you know that might not sit so well with a lot of people who who as as you've said you know we, I think we would all you know now that we sort of fully all over what um, you know what those sort of different definitions are you know we'd probably all lean towards soft power as a preferred means of uh, sort of integrating with and interacting with with our uh, brothers and sisters around the planet. Um, why you know how how, how why, why is it necessarily so justifiable to see those two bits of information then you know a cut to soft power and a huge increase um, above inflation to hard power well uh, Deepak makes a really really good point um, the thing with soft power is it's it's a long-term goal achiever and when you're dealing with immediate existential threats it, it, it's not essentially best place to deal with that um, and, and the situation is we are now facing a, a much more significant threat level and you're going to you need to have a, a robust response to that. And, and in particular, again, Deepak raises important issues. It, it, it's very unfortunate that we've had these these major cuts, um, partly in real terms to nurses pay, also in relation to the research programs. These are all important things. Just part of the issue is you've also got to look at well, what what damage can be done to the our own nation by the immediate threats that we face at the present. And if you look at, for example, um, China alone has about 300 attacks a day, cyber attacks a day on, on Britain. We, it's absolutely necessary that we have an immediate response to that, at least to, to offend British interests uh, on the cyber web. Um, and that's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, and especially when one recognises the danger posed to the nation, it goes a lot beyond immediate issues such as nurses pay and so on. And we can even go towards the stability of democracy, as we've seen with um, you know, potential issues in, in America. And of course, on the one hand, you had uh, Russia potentially influencing the Trump election, but also now Iran was getting involved. There was a recent uh, FBI investigation, which has revealed that at the same time as possibly Russia was interfering um, for the Trump administration, you then had uh, Iran supporting the, the Biden administration. So both sides are having influences from external parties, not necessarily organised by themselves, but just externally. It's really not good for the health of democracy, which I think is an even more fundamental issue which, which needs to be dealt with. So although the amount of money which is being used is extreme, or, or at least very large, when it's so existential, it's necessary. How much difference will it actually make, though? So these 80 additional uh, well, Trident warheads, aren't they? How much difference would that really make when you've got the US and Russia around 3,000 warheads or four, around 4,000 warheads? And we're going to have, what, 260 or something now? Um, how much difference? I mean, is there really value for money in doing this? So, and, if things, and, if, and, and, and if things do get to the worst, what difference does it yeah, make that's, anyway? That's a really good point. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a good point. Um, and I think partly the issue is symbolic. And that is, we now know how, an import, how important it is that the US feels that it's supported by its European allies. And I think that was one of the main issues which led to the Trump administration denigrating NATO, because essentially it was just America lifting all the weight and 
it was only really Britain who was also keeping up to the two percent. And if America doesn't feel supported, then it withdraws from its geopolitical responsibilities, and that puts everyone at, at a much greater level of risk. So I think partly we need to show our support and commitment to the cause in order to maintain that level of geopolitical protection uh, for the Western world. One last question then, in the backdrop of, as we kind of alluded to before, cuts in other areas if this is largely a symbolic gesture if you were speaking for the government guy how would you say this is why it is so important in in two sentences well although it's symbolic in itself it has a tangible and substantive effect namely that we improve the sturdiness of the relationship with america and its willingness to defend our interests as well which which of necessity benefits the people of this country. And you would argue that that also um, sort of weighs in, in sort of from an economic point of view. So, if, you know, if, if America feels more sort of militarily or, or hard power support from the UK in terms of defending sort of joint interests, that would also improve the, uh, the, the sort of but the basis for a strong trading arrangement as well. I'd, I'd say it goes even beyond that. I'd say internationally, beyond just America, but also particularly our, now our Indo, uh, Indo-Chinese or well, Indo-Asian allies or, or possible trading partners, they are more likely to support a nation which has also shown itself to be strong and willing to resist China, uh, particularly India at the, at the moment. And that will benefit our potential trading agreements. Anything from you, Deepak? It it doesn't it just doesn't look good and and for me the telling thing was mm-hmm. the example I gave of the uh, the research fund and everything because I got the the news on the same day so on the same day I was reading this piece of news at the same time that this was going to be slashed by more than half and then we're going you know at this much above inflation to um, mm-hmm. pump some money into um, these nuclear warheads so for me it was just it's hard it's for me I think it's a bit of a hard sell I mean I I'm I'm not going to be massively convinced by it because that's just the because I agree with what Hector says in terms of the tangibles that we have that uh, will no longer receive the funding that they used to or maybe should. Um, and, we're, and we're pumping money into this. It's, it's just hard for me to take in, I think, generally. Yeah, I think I, I don't necessarily think it's the worst idea. I just I, I think in a day and age when, um, you know, our sort of national need, uh, you know, in terms of policing in terms of support for for individuals who are disadvantaged in terms you know in terms of homelessness in the country it's been largely sort of the cracks have been papered over through the pandemic in terms of providing emergency housing for people but I I feel like this is a lot of money that could do a lot of good in the country and it's hard for whilst I totally accept the um the, the other benefits in terms of, I mean, trading and relating and communicating and collaborating with other countries. I mean, that, that's sort of at the, the fundamental core of, you know, of, of my kind of political ideology. But uh, it, it strikes me that uh, it's, it's, it's a very weird place for me to find myself to say, no, we, we should spend this money here, not on international projects, because it, it isn't really, um, you know, in, in terms of you spend the money on day one, for example, on nurses' pay, then that nurse's life is immediately improved. You spend the money day one on, um, you know, homeless outreach and trying to trying to solve that crisis, which has been getting worse and worse over the last few years. You see results on day one, whereas with with this, it's a heck of a lot of money to spend on day one and a very very difficult way to communicate the benefit and also see the benefit. Whilst it, I accept it's there, uh, I think I think it's it's a very strange one.
for me, I think I would say it's the it's the classic toss up between direct and indirect benefits. Uh, and being the utilitarian that I am, the reason I support it is because I essentially think, although it's indirect and possibly further down the line, you have a greater number or broader indirect benefit or a greater number of people who are indirectly benefited than you would directly. Um, so although it looks perhaps cold and callous or, or anything along those lines, I think the ultimate good is, is still greater. So, fellas, we've had a message in from Amelia and we would like to sort of integrate a, a, a listener correspondence feature regularly into, into, into the programme. So she has written in with a question on the environment. So she, she writes the following. Hi, chaps. Human behaviour has led to a climate emergency which threatens the future of our planet. Um, she, she goes on to say, most of my female friends and relatives have made big lifestyle changes out of concern for the environment, giving up meat and dairy and rejecting plastic, for example, and only buying second hand where they can in terms of clothing or other goods. Um, she goes on to say that men she knows and meets seem to be afraid or unwilling to make similar changes to their lifestyles. And she knows men who are embarrassed to take their own bag to the shops, for example, and wouldn't dream of ordering a bean burger. So what she's asking is, is green behaviour a gendered issue? Deepak, do you recognise that observation? Yes. Yes, you uh, do. In one word. Um, so I think, how, does, how does that yeah. relate in, in, in your life then? So do, 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 you, do you know people uh, sort of along those gender splits who behave differently? Yes, yeah. uh, I do. Um, I, I think I like to as much as I can. However, the sort of behaviours we're talking about, the more the more green behaviour we're looking to have now, does tend to be amongst my um, female colleagues, friends and family members. It just appears to be that way. And I, I've, I've always... But it does seem as though the concepts of being... Uh, concepts of femininity and greenness just seem to be cognitively linked so for some reason. Yeah, intertwined. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of research like about women have having maybe greater tendency to be more pro-social or empathetic or uh, altruistic um, in, in the way they do things. I think that probably has something of a role to play in that. Guy, uh, you, is, 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 is this something you recognise? Is this something that, that sort of strikes a chord with you? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, well, yeah, certainly. And, and Deepak raises a very interesting point. Um, uh, and I'd certainly agree on the psychological issue. And I think... We can see that even more recent studies have shown that generally uh, women have record higher rates of conscientiousness as a, a broad term to refer to things like uh, both cleanliness as well as uh, care and um, maintenance and all that sort of sphere of things. Um, and I think it's probably fairly sensible to draw a connection between that and concern for the general state of, of all the health of the world and in, t in terms of you guy then in terms in terms of uh women in your life compared to the men in your life who you may have conversations around the environment now it, it's not a, a, a ju judgmental place it's it's, it's not a, a problem to um uh to to necessarily it's, it's it's more that is it something you recognize as as what you see as well do you see more women in your life making more steps in terms of green behavior 
Well, only insofar as on the broad scale of the nation. As far as particularly people I know personally, I'd say it's more even spread. Uh, I come from a relatively unusual perspective in, in that, coming from Bermuda, people generally actually have a fairly good understanding of the interrelationship between humanity and nature because it's just necessary due to the harsher climate so you know, mm -hmm. since my young days I'm, i've been fairly used to using a small amount of water etc because you only have okay. so much in your tank um it's not to say that everyone's eco in in bermuda it's just it's, some it's a financial awareness. decision as well yeah as much as that. <laughs> exactly or, yeah, or no, just cause... fundamentally necessary because if you run out of water you can't use it anymore <laughs> Well, I, I went back to um, I went back to Amelia to ask that, and and that was something that we um, sort of spoke about. That for a lot of people, the looking at you know the five p plastic bag cost, or or looking at uh, using less electricity at home, that for a lot of women there was an ecological motivation behind that, but for a lot of fellas, it's 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 just about saving a few quid. On, oh yeah, on, on I really board. wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't. So is that something? Is is I guess I guess that sort of ties into what you say about um, you know being being uh, responsible with with using things you know in in, in your home in, in in Bermuda where you know there are limited supplies and not not thanks yeah not, basically you know, not going country, without know. but you know it's it's a practical consideration over an ecological one. Uh, yeah, I I, okay. I wouldn't say that's necessarily a wrong way of looking at it. I mean, I haven't done any major studies, so I couldn't say for sure. Um, but I think. Men do tend to respond to those sort of immediate practicalities quite well. Mm -hmm. um, and I, so I wouldn't be surprised to find that that is the sort of thing that has a major influence on their decision making. OK, then. So um, sort of moving on to the sort of next part of uh, Amelia's question, which was, um, you know, in terms of this is really a yes, no question. So both of you. So we'll go around the room. Um, and, and I recognise I haven't said anything on this yet either, but uh, <laughs> I've just been re refereeing. Um, but um, you know, what changes have you made personally to your lifestyle in terms of as a response to the climate crisis? I do take bags to the supermarket, but that's because I don't want to pay 5p for a plastic bag. And also, I don't want to fill up that cupboard in the kitchen full of plastic <laughs> bags with plastic bags. So, yeah. you know, that's that's where I'm at. Um, that's so, what a guy would call an indirect benefit to the environment. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's a, bit, a bit of soft power. <laughs> well, I love it. See, I told you. Yeah. OK, so... Um, so I, I've I've got my skeleton out of the closet. Is is the same true of you, fellas? Is 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 it something that just doesn't really crop up on your, uh, on your radar? I mean, I do my best. I mean, pretty much the same as you. But I pretty think, quite, yeah, I I I I I kind of do it for the same reasons as you. But I think essentially I do do it for the environment. That is on my mind when I started doing it. Um, mm -hmm. I could do more in terms of like meat consumption. There are some sort of things that naturally happen in my life which are better for the environment. So for example, I don't drive, so that rules that one out. I pretty much walk everywhere as much as I can. I walk quite long distances to go to shops, different parts of town. And and guys, are you are you a bit similar to me then? Uh, I'd say I'm probably fairly similar to Deepak in that okay. there are a number of things I do which are good for the environment or at least not harmful. 
although my reasonings are, are, are multifaceted, so only some of them mm -hmm. are specifically for the environment and others are for other reasons. So for example, I, I, I can't drive for a start and I don't take transport that much because I, I like walking and I think it's good for my health because I don't generally do that much exercise <laughs> otherwise. Um, can also, for example, what we eat in the household, I probably still eat too much red meat, but mm. Um, because my mum's a nutritionist, she does quite a lot of good work to keep my dad and I in control as to, as to what we actually consume. Uh, Otherwise, so it would be sort of piles of steaks. Oh, it'd be so good. Uh, but no, we have a fairly varied diet in the house. Uh, so again, that, you know, that's quite good for the environment. Um, same with, you know, I'm still fairly conservative with how much water I use. Um, and uh, certainly, again, electricity, partly that's, again, um, money as, as well as an environment. Um, mm -hmm. So I think there are things like Deepak which are good for the environment, but it's not all done for environmental reasons. Fine. And and last question then. So we recognise the question. We recognise that, uh, to all intents and purposes, green behaviours do appear to be um, do appear to be intrinsically linked to to gender. Um, we recognise within ourselves as 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 three uh, identifiable males. Um, that we are, we fit into that description of of the situation. Um, now, what what do you think would make you change? What can society do? What can the media do? What 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 do you think would make you change? I mean, I, I can I can start us for example, um, and I, I personally, uh, I I don't know because I, I understand the message and I understand the climate crisis. And I support basically any legislation or cooperative um, measures that, you know, governments or organisations put in place. You know, for instance, if, if in the office, if, if there's readily available recycle bins, those are what I use over the general waste. Um, but at the same time, I think I, if I'm being really self-critical, if I have to go out of my way to be green, then I won't be. Um, so... Uh, you know that 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 that's effectively the, the truth and the the hypocrisy of it. And I think there are lots of men in our position whereby, uh, if if green is convenient, then green is the route we take. But if it's inconvenient, then we will uh, not necessarily take that route. So what 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 could change? Um, what would make you change? Well, it's interesting. I I think uh, almost a, a I'm going to say a broader statement, and I think an inference can be drawn from that. Mm -hmm. uh, the broader statement is, I think, fundamentally the best uh, way to solve the climate. And you, you might disagree, but we won't worry about the argument here so much as, as my inference. Uh, and I think the best place to solve the um, environmental issue is through the marketplace. And so I think what people should, one of the best ways to approach it then is to make it uh, more desirable in the markets to follow green initiatives, as well as the fact that using less and less resources costs less and, and is already... Um, attractive in itself and so we've actually seen more and more efficient use over the decade so just through the market itself we're becoming much greener in, in how we do stuff efficiently now the inference i think that can be drawn from that is that actually from a number of decades really the marketplace not so much from the consumer but from those who are actually you know running the market has been uh, directed shall we say by men and so I think we can well we can see an interesting inference from that in that again we see it's this this economic incentive which 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 is driving. So I think if we can find then a way to make it either seem economically efficient or pragmatic 
to do X, Y, and Z, which so happens to be environmentally attractive, then that will be the most ef effective means of, of co-opting men. So um, effectively, because uh, I was worried you were going off on a tangent, but you did answer the question, which, um, which is good. So if effectively, it's about messaging for you then. So for instance, looking at the, as, as Deepak mentioned before, the, the sort of inherently altruistic and caring nature of women, um, sort of for, for, for many people within that demographic, the, the mere ecological benefits are enough to alter behaviours. Whereas if there were an alteration in terms of messaging to men, which encouraged green behaviours, but maybe had more practical application that would tangibly improve their lives, for instance, that might be the way that we could alter our behaviours. So, for instance, um, perhaps a, a, a five pound um, charge for a plastic bag <laughs> or perhaps, you know, I know that's not necessarily what you're suggesting, but is, is that characterising what you're saying, guys? Is that sort of effectively making the message more appealing to men? And even if it isn't direct or is that patronising to men? Well, I think to some extent, I, you know, some of the language can perhaps sometimes seem a bit wet. So, you know, some men might not be interested in it for that reason. Uh, and well, I think we're a fairly good cross section of men, um, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, you know what we do and, and um, our backgrounds and, mm. and sort of. So you know, I th I think that we all fundamentally agree with the logic, and we all fundamentally understand the the truth of the matter. It's about the specifics of altering our behaviours and making it so that we do make better choices. I, I think Guy has a really good point there about men in particular possibly wanting more short-term and tangible yeah. benefits to themselves. And then if a byproduct of that is benefits to the environment, then they will be really they'll be cool with it to run with it. And I and I think that it's um something I didn't mention before, but it's also important as well as the body of research which suggests that uh, women tend to be more altruistic and pro-social and empathetic. There's also a lot of research that shows women are more future-focused than men. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and if and if that is the case, um, then men potentially may need uh, to see the outcomes and the tangible benefits of it to their lives happening more sooner than maybe women need to. So women may have a more of a long-term approach to um, going greener. Is that and, and, one might, so interesting. and one might criticise I'm not saying one should, but I'm just saying, you know, one might yeah. criticise men for that approach, or whatever their psychology is, but I don't think that's actually very helpful. Mm. No, I, I think rather than trying to change the social um, <laughs> or, or the psychological makeup of, of, of men, mm. it's good to then come up with different ways of, as you, as you put it, Hector, marketing. It. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I think fundamentally, because that's the thing, I think um, whilst, uh, whilst I, I know Amelia, and I know she is... Um, you know, she puts her money where her mouth is on the environment. You know, she does, you know, does all of those measures and more mm. in terms of environmental focus. And, and what I liked about the nature of the question was that it wasn't accusatory. Mm. It wasn't it, it's not looking at that. And I think um, that we've been able to kind of explore the fundamentals of, um, you know, of, of the different ways that the different genders sort of operate. Um, you know, I think. We're past the point in, in terms of the, I mean, the, the government declared a climate emergency. We are past the point of, of, of pointing the finger of blame. Uh, it, I think 
conversations like this one where we uh, sort of genuinely lay out exactly what can be done to get to the result we want that's what we're trying to do and I think um, that's why I thought the question was so interesting and why I thought it'd be good fun to talk about so so great no I, I think um, hopefully Amelia's happy with that answer but, uh, well this isn't tough <laughs> <laughs> well what are we going to be talking about next? Oh, it's yeah. rather it's a The policing yeah. and something and courts and something, something else. Something Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In the aftermath of protests last year with Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion causing a great deal of risk and sort of disruption in, in the capital and also the events we saw last weekend at Clapham Common, the, the police crime sentencing and courts bill has seen a lot of attention there's been a lot of uh, talk about it in the media in terms of attacks on free speech so guy you are the law student you love a bit of law uh, what is it and why are people so agitated about it well i mean essentially it's a bill which gives greater powers to the police and particularly their ability to control shall we say potential protests now, people are very upset about this, partly because protests become much more the action du jour at the, at the present moment. Um, and we've seen some very major protests very recently, of course, with BLM and Extinction Rebellion. Um, and so particularly the activist types are really quite wedded to the concept. And so any threat to them is, is seen to be quite controversial. Uh, however, what I would say is that actually the bill does a lot less than, than people think it does or are afraid it's going to do. Uh, so I would say a lot of the reaction is slightly overblown. Uh, I think you can see that, for example, um, from the, the fact that the bill is abolishing public nuisance. So when people throw out the, oh my goodness, this bill is, is going to give a 10-year sentence if someone does a serious annoyance to someone, what are they going to do, prod them and go to jail? Uh, I think you'll find that really the serious annoyance phrase is important because it's, it's really just a signpost word, which means it's referring to uh, nuisance as a, as a term of art for in law. Uh, and so where you talk about serious annoyance, where you talk about public nuisance this is a former common law offense and really it's just being brought into statute it's really just being codified which makes it clearer and easier for the police to use so guy you talked before uh, about um words in you know wording in the bill words like annoyance and nuisance so for a lot of people who are rather worked up about the bill they see words like that unqualified do you want to start by go into a little bit more detail on nuisance and annoyance and how they can be defined because uh, then effectively these powers and these uh, these sentences could be applied in very very spurious cases so uh, what I, partly what i'm saying is more in relation to the fact that there's a limited change as opposed to the, the value of the law itself because even if this act hadn't come into play you'd still have public nuisance so that would still involve annoyance that's the first part I wanted to say. Secondly, this is a, a term of art. So it, it has a, a long case history behind it defining what this word means. Now, it's been a, a while since I've, I've done nuisance law itself, so I probably won't be able to give you a, a rundown of the case history. Um, but essentially, it's to do with um, a substantive detriment, detrimental impact on another individual's quality of life. So you can have private nuisance and you can have public nuisance. Let's not worry about the difference between those, but 
essentially both of those take a view of 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 that concept um and it's it's important that individuals do have protection as against individuals that's essentially the whole basis of of tort law um and i think even though protest is an, a necessary and good thing in a, in a democratic system you still need to have a level of protection for other people deepak on guy's point there so ultimately what this bill does put through is is effectively the home secretary can decide what is annoyance what is okay and what is not okay do you think it's right that the Home Secretary should be able to decide what is acceptable and what isn't. Do you think there's a danger that the Home Secretary could apply different rules to different sets of protests depending on her political persuasion? Yeah, I think it's highly dangerous, personally. Um, like, at, to decide these things at the whim of the Home Secretary. That, the, the, the point you raised there, when I, was reading, when I was reading through the document... That example you're giving there was basically the pinnacle of what's wrong with this. I mean, that that was the final layer of this onion, which was, hold on, um, this is scary. Um, and the reason it's scary is initially is because it means that she, by using statutory instruments, she can actually avoid full scrutiny. scrutiny. So when she says, uh, when it says things in the bill, such as serious disruption, um, if that was defined in there, then it would be okay. But serious disruption isn't actually defined. And Guy makes a good point. It doesn't have to be defined. Um, but if it was defined, it would help because then she could actually have, there could actually be full scrutiny in the committee stage. There could be impact assessments and it could actually get some press attention as well properly on what the definition is. But because that's not there, she's basically given herself the power um, to decide the criteria for a protest and what's acceptable. Um, in terms of what serious disruption is, and obviously in a fully functioning democracy, I don't think that's ideal. Um, um, I don't know what you think, Guy, about that. I mean, what, you, what did you think about that that idea? Generally, I, I definitely agree that such broad definitional powers are quite dangerous, um, and, and they did concern me as well. What I'd, I'd, I'd say two things in response to that. Firstly, people still have quite a strong level of defence against that. Even with the definitional powers, as against all the possible charges, there is a reasonableness defence. And that's fairly easy to meet, particularly for the, the forms of protest that most of us are comfortable with. Um, it's not a very particularly high burden. And even if they were to define such and such a protest as, as seriously uh, as causing a serious annoyance or any other such form. As long as you can show that the protest itself and taking part in it was reasonable, then you have a defence at law. And although potentially, shall we say, that if it's to do with safety of the realm, judicial review might be difficult in, in that instance, so you might not necessarily be able to affect uh, the definition given, I'm not saying it's impossible, but let's say hypothetically for argument's sake, you will still likely have quite a strong defence in a court of law as regards reasonableness, whatever the, the definition was. So although you might not have uh, the initial defence, you will have it ultimately, which is, which is a strong protection. Secondly, I would also say that it's very important for Home Secretary or, or, or whatever the internal secretary of any country to have a level of flexibility to protect the, the, the nation as against instability. Um, for example, we've seen um, in America the importance of, of a strong police level protection, shall we say, a, a, against 
well, actually, well, even insurrection with, uh, with, with, the, with the Trump debacle. It's, although perhaps undesirable in all instances, there, is clear, there are clearer examples where it's absolutely necessary to have strong and flexible response approaches to potential civil unrest. I agree with that. Flexibility can be good and it has it has its strengths and weaknesses, doesn't it? I mean, in terms of flexibility in responding to things in a timely manner, but on the other hand, depending on the personality of the individual who's behind it all, um, could have an impact the other way. So yeah, I, I, I think it's a fair point. The other kicker for me, though, in here, I don't, I don't know if you spotted this, but there was one part which said... Um, it uses the phrase, in inverted commas, ought to know. And when it's talking about ought to know, it's referring to knowing of the restrictions during a protest. So, you know, during a protest, something might be announced on a loudspeaker or it might come out in a press release or on social media during the protest in terms of what the restrictions are at that particular time. Now, in this bill, there's an ought to know, um, a reference to ought to know, which means even if the demonstrator hasn't seen a, a tweet sent out by the police or hasn't heard the loudspeaker because, you know, protests by the very nature can be quite chaotic, they can no longer use that defence in a court of law because in the old Public Order Act, um, you could be in trouble if you knowingly fail to comply. That knowingly fail to comply thing is kind of gone now because they're assuming that everybody ought to know of the restrictions so it's hard harder to use that defense in court uh partly it's an interesting one because in the broader sweep of the law actually ignorance of the law is no defense so really in, in many ways the knowingly section was was pretty nice to people uh, and perhaps unnecessarily so and again so ought to know is is I can see why you'd be concerned, but if, it's it's always within the perspective of the reasonable man. That's generally what's used when it talks about ought to know or, or other such things. So, what would the man on the Clapham omnibus think or know? Right. That's the that's the the famous um, interpretation of that. And so, if it is just something which was only put out a second just beforehand, no court's going to say that's that's reasonable knowledge. Um, there are strong levels of protection. The courts have shown themselves to be much more robust in, in, in recent history, as we've seen as against government interve interventions. Um, and and so although I think, yeah, there's, there's well, I can see why one would react to that worriedly. I'd also say that there are still strong protections in place. And this is really not out of the general keeping of, of the law. So. My, I've got, I've got sort of two takeaways for really interesting listening to you, listening to you to talk. But um, uh, sorry, guy, I'm going to pick on you a couple of times. So right. uh, th there was one thing. Um, I'll start with the most recent. So the the ought to know sort of reference um, that Deepak made back to the uh, back 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 to the wording of the legislation. It strikes me that if so, for instance, if if there is a sudden change to the rules and regs and a uh, protest or protesters are found to be in contravention of those within a few minutes or seconds then you know that they're obviously not going to be uh, th that will be taken into account but it strikes me that if you've got a, uh, a a set of powers that can be flexible so that people going into the protest uh, wh whether it could be days of protesting people going in understand the rules it shouldn't be their responsibility to discover and then communicate any changes to those rules. That is the responsibility, in my view, of the police. I think that every protest should be policed. Obviously, I do. It's not, it's not, um, you know, it's not an attack on the police. I think that 
actually what this what this bill does is put too far 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 too much pressure on an already strained police service that effectively too much power to to police what this does effectively is put yet more pressure on the police too much power going to the police that isn't that we've already seen where police have command from above and aren't necessarily equipped to deal with the situation. We've seen that lots of times. You know, we saw, saw it in the 80s with police mistakes costing people their lives in large gatherings. We, we, we see it now whereby, I think it was four arrests made on Clapham Common last week. I think all but one of them de-arrested. So not arrested and not charged, but de-arrested. More power to police is, is, is not necessarily healthy. And the other thing you mentioned was... Um, you know, kind of a wider point about how the courts would process this. So for me, if legislation systematically causes people to be arrested, charged, and then ultimately put into court, if systematically the court finds in the defendant's favour there is something wrong with the legislation in the first place, if the courts are having to mop up mis systematic mistakes in policing, then th this, this bill is not fit for purpose. Well, so I'll try and respond to both of those. Uh, the first one, I think, is is really more of an argument for uh, a change in the policing culture and uh, a, a better version of that policing culture, better training for the police. And certainly, I agree with that. I mean, you won't you won't have any uh, argument from me against that. I do think uh, policing culture has unfortunately diminished in quality over the past few years. I think, uh, and they could also do with some more training. Deal with the newer situations, newer threats, uh, which have, have arisen. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. Whether or, whether or not it responds to the broader point about the, the need for flexibility, strength of, of, of police powers, I'm, I'm not entirely certain. I suppose one could say, well, we're not quite ready yet for it. But I think because we already have the issues, we have to respond to them as they arise. And then the police will have to rise to that alongside that. And we have to try and support them too but that's a uh, uh not tangential but that's a, a an issue which rises alongside that which we need to deal with um and then on to the second point uh oh actually i've just gone and forgotten it what, would you remind me no no that's okay I'll, I'll, so um if effectively if systematic oh the, the courts yeah that's it have to um, have to put yeah. things right uh well, the second point well you've got one has to remember that Essentially, the DPP, the, the Department of Prosecutions, works very closely with the courts. And, OK, at, at the worst is possible that there will be a, a, a situation where you get a lot of uh, worthless charges being brought, which are then turned down by the courts. But very quickly, the DPP will know what works, what doesn't work, where the, the courts will, or how the courts will interpret the legislation and, and what it means in real terms. And to that extent, the, the, the DPP, the police, are not going to prosecute where it's meaningless to do so. So you referred to the DPP before. Um, a former DPP uh, director of public prosecutions currently sits in, in the House of Commons. Why did he instruct his voters not to vote for this bill? If, 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 if this is a, a, a right and proper bill, why did the former director of public prosecutions instruct his folks not to well i mean it's it's hard to say it's not his his positioning on that hasn't been overtly legal and he, he certainly is a lawyer so he's in the he's well placed to to make a, a legal argument on that 
but as far as I'm aware, that hasn't been strictly put forward in in Parliament. There seems to be more to be based on the the politics of the issue, and and the desire to protect protest, which I can understand. Yeah. No, and and also, um, sorry, just just for anyone listening who's wondering about this nameless former director yeah. of public prosecutions, it's Keir Starmer. Yeah. It's Keir Starmer. It's, it's why he's got a knighthood. Yeah. So yes, absolutely. Um, Which, by very... the way, I do support. I think more senior politicians should have knighthoods. That's much more fun. In fact, ironically, <laughs> the two most senior Labour politicians in in, par- in Parliament at the moment in the House of Commons have knighthoods: Sir Lindsay yeah. Hoyle and Sir Keir Starmer. <laughs> where that isn't the case in the Tory Party, which is just weird and wonderful. Well, I mean, one one could argue that those knighthoods awarded for service to the country. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, one, one could argue that you're more likely to be there on merit if, if you aren't part of the Conservative Party. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> <laughs> one could also argue the exact opposite, which, of course, I would be more than happy to do as well. So going back to that, I, I, I accept what you're saying. And it was a bit of a barbed question about, about Keir Starmer's position, because I, I do recognise that the instruction up until the events at Clapham Common was a Labour extent, abstention. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not something that he's been championing from the very beginning. But at the same time, I don't necessarily... I mean, there, there will, of course, be an element of politicking because he's the leader of the opposition. It's his job to oppose where, where, where appropriate. And I think that um, lots of sort of hard left Labour supporters have been very dissatisfied by um, by the Starmer Labour Party supporting the government quite so uh, quite so overtly as it has done. But on this basis, I think there is legit- legitimate cause to 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 make the point that actually it wasn't. Oh gosh, this is all very unpopular. Let's jump on this bandwagon and stick it into the government. I think I think there is there was a genuine public outcry at those scenes we saw at Clapham Common last week. And I think it was the the Labour Party led by Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, um, responding to those scenes and, and sort of expressing concern at, you know, the the, the possibility of, of repeated sort of cases of that, whereby there is apparently heavy-handed policing of, of something that doesn't require it. Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. It, it does seem like it was a response, or at least partly a response to a, a public outcry. I'm just dubious as to the, shall we say, not the validity, but the accuracy of the reasons for the public outcry. I think a lot of it stems from a misunderstanding of what the legislation actually does and partly just the optics, not entirely, but I think a lot of it also comes from the the unfortunate optics that we've had of poor policemanship over the past few weeks. And it it just has corresponded with the legislation at an unfortunate time. Whereas I, I think if we hadn't had the two recent major issues, this bill would not have would have passed with a much quieter an issue. Yeah, well, I think um, I think that's sort of that's sort of natural when things happen in the the country and and you know a magnifying glass is placed over the government so you know people expect comment from the home secretary as we got around those scenes in Clapham common for instance people expect comment from the prime minister people expect comment from um, the sort of key opposition figures and i i think that that scrutiny is is always going to be a good thing and i i think as as for for reasons discussed before uh, I'm very much a fan of 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 the the sort of school of thought that is don't let good be the enemy of perfect. So, for instance, you could argue this this is good legislation, but it isn't perfect and it needs reworking. That case could be made. 
I would argue that it's not good legislation. It needs fixing before it gets good, let alone perfect. And I think that's the way a lot of people would would say. I, 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 and going on to a conversation we've had off air, um, you know, talking about uh, what we think will happen with the bill. You suggested that you think it will pass through Parliament very easily, the Commons, and 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 the, the Lords will will sort of offer their their alterations, their, their amendments to it. Do you, is that still what you think, Guy? Yeah, and I, I think it shows the, the value of the House of Lords. Uh, I think they're very good at scrutinising legislation. And I think where we do have a few issues with the bill, I think they'll offer some useful amendments. And it's quite likely that the government would be forced to accept most of them, or at least a, a number of them, considering the tensions at the moment. Personally, I, I, th- I think it's lazy. I think the, the, the bill is, is, is lazy in the ambiguity of those, of, of those definitions and needing clarity on those. And I, I, th- I think it's, it's one of those where it, it reads like a first draft. And, you know, it's, it's my sincere hope that those elements which are most problematic come out. Well, unfortunately, it still needs to go to the committee stages. It needs to go to the House of Lords. And, and that's essentially when the bill gets tightened up, because right now it's clear that it won't be able to be rushed to Parliament as might have originally been intended, um, as it's already been delayed a bit. So I, I think some of those concerns should be addressed. We don't, I don't know for sure. We haven't seen the final version, but I think there's something good reason to, to hope that and to think that that will happen. I'm just out of interest to ask both of you, what exactly is your, your primary concern with the bill? That it's it's inherently flawed, that it will be abused? Uh, certainly we, I can understand the, the definition, definitional concerns as regards to the powers of the Home Secretary, although I think we can appreciate that a level of flexibility is necessary. But what is your, what is your chief issue with the bill? Um, I think the Home Secretary side, I think that's a big issue because of who the Home Secretary is. At the moment, <laughs> so I'm, afraid, more I'm afraid. To, I'm a... afraid to say. I think. I think a lot of my issues at the moment have to do with something to do with that. Um, I think that I know it. I know it's not very nice, but I think some of my concerns are around that. And Theresa May spoke really. Um, I don't know if you saw that. Spoke really well about it the other day in the comments. Uh, but she actually flipped it the other way to which I'm saying it. Um, and she made some good points about, you know, the roles of protest in democracy and the confusion the general public may have that this bill is coming in to stop people gluing themselves to cars and the really crazy stuff that people, crazy in the inverted commas, that um, things that people do in protests, um, although you could say that's the democratic right as well. Um, the general public are probably thinking, oh, it's going to kind of get rid of that massive disruption to my daily life with these sorts of protests that block roads and everything. But I think essentially because of the language being so vague, it could go a lot deeper than that and intervene in things which aren't as necessarily as disruptive as the general public think. That's my worry, and that is to do with the language. Um, and uh, and you and guy, you will know this well. Like you, you the Public Order Act, uh, the uh, the famous Public Order Act, nineteen eighty six. You know, I picked out some language from there, and and I was looking at the difference between the language in there and in this, and in that POA. There was um, serious public disorder, serious damage to property or serious disruption to the life of the community. And you could impose restrictions based on any of those things happening. Okay, and the language, the word used in here was the word impact. And now the word impact is such a neutral word. It's a neutral word. Things like uh, public disorder, disruption and damage. Disorder, disruption and damage are negative words. 
Um, but switching that to impact, it could mean anything. But I mean, all protests technically are going to have some sort of impact because that's the point of a protest. By definition, they have it? to be impact. Yeah, they have know, to have an impact. Now, so I, I, before you come back in, Guy, I'll, I'll, I'll offer yeah. my, um, my primary concern. Yeah. I've already covered it, really, but I think that um, with, with legislation, and I think fundamentally the organisers of any protest should be compelled as they as with many of these protests that will be would be affected by this legislation would have been within the confines of the law for me it should be an absolute imperative human right you know basic right that you can plan a protest that will remain compliant with the legislation the idea that a partisan home secretary regardless of who that is can change the goalposts after the start of the game is to use a sporting analogy you know that is fundamentally wrong i think that regardless of who it is whether it's um you know whether it's david blunkett theresa may or pretty patel or any of the others in the so i think that the absolutely the organizers of any protest should know what it is they're going to do um and i think there is already huge huge work between organizers of protest and locals constabularies around the country it's already things that happen but the idea that just because a protest is becoming too loud, i.e. too many people support this protest that the government isn't acting upon, it's fundamentally wrong that, that, that the, the rules should be changed after the start of the game. Uh, well, sure. So uh, to respond to both of those to some extent, I think you'll find there's a subclause in the bit dealing with definitions above the Home Secretary's definitional section. Uh, where it specifically sets out what they what they mean by the initial definitions for what will cause either serious impact or serious disruption. Again, that's something that really does need to be taken account of because we want to make sure that those protests are not only within the bounds of the law, but are what we would refer to as constitutional protests, i.e. not causing a level of, in a sense, assault, because assault is a, a, a fear of danger to the self, um, to other people outside the protest. And we've seen uh, examples in America, for example, of uh, BLM. We have crowds of people sort of screaming at individuals just sitting outside a local restaurant, which is just simply unacceptable in a, in a civilised democracy, whatever one's concept of, uh, of uh, protest might be. So it's important to have protection as against things like that, which is primarily what this legislation seems to be aimed against. But then again, it's not like protests just stay the same as they're set up. Often they can... Well, as we've seen, can sometimes spiral out of either out of control or you'll have kind of pockets of serious incidents which can happen. So, for example, during um, the Extinction Rebellion stuff, you had people severely interrupting with local transportations, climbing on top of trains and so on, which caused a lot of significant uh, damage and loss of uh, loss of trade income within the city of London, which results in a lot of damage spread out across the populace. So we can't have billions lost just because of that. Uh, and likewise, you ended up having uh, during the BLM in London, where there was police tensions resulting in a lot of violence in the streets. And none of that was planned. None of that was the idea from the beginning, but it happened down the line. So it is sometimes necessary to be able to step in in the course of a protest. So just 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 to sort of clear a couple of things there, I think um, with Extinction Rebellion, you're talking about tens of thousands of people and 
naturally the most high profile stuff, the stuff that sort of whizzed its way around the internet was the most sort of performative action. You know, I, I react really differently when I look at different. So seeing Trafalgar Square absolutely full of people, kind of party atmosphere, and yeah, they're blocking the road on the way down to Whitehall. But for me, that that that's sort of within the confines and that that is protest as it should be. There is disruption, but there isn't necessarily damage or danger. I think the the really sort of memorable example of the actions that was was difficult was um, seeing those people get on top of that that commuter train. That's a mistake, and it sends the wrong message, and it's impacting the wrong people. But you know, again, sort of referring to so, and, and obviously we take it for granted that there was absolutely no violence whatsoever in terms of physical violence or threat extinction rebellion, and. The important thing is is not to conflate the uh, the the Black Lives Matter with the you know old statues matter protests that were happening around the same time, and I think that um, the the reporting out of the Black Lives Matter protests I, I know in America different story but certainly over here a very 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 peaceful and orderly affair a couple of isolated incidents that you will always have when you have vast gatherings. But I think that the damage done to freedom of expression and I think the damage done to protecting people's rights to perfectly both legitimate and honourable causes where there's a couple of mistakes. And it, it struck me sort of that the, the, the right wing press brought a lot of its readership and that, that that is, you know, a lot of the same sort of type of people that think Pretty Patel, for example, is a fantastic home secretary doing exactly what she needs to do. so for me there was a lot of narrative that was based on false pretenses and I think that the government was much more much more concerned about the optics of London grinding to a halt than it was about the respective causes of race equality or climate change. I don't think we can refer to the incidences as just a few small pockets of of, misbehavior these are quite serious and large numbered well not in the sense of the incidents themselves but of involving large numbers of people uh expressions of, of violence you had uh, masses of numbers of people clashing with the police violently and throwing molotov cocktails and the like you had serious damage to property not just in america but in london and you you had Uh, in many instances actually a great deal of threat level to just local bystanders these are some things which need to be addressed no matter what one's concept of the moral worthiness of protests and one's got to remember that legislation inherently is general that's i mean that's a principle which goes back to aristotle because of just the the fact that we can't deal with every situation individually we need to have something which is prepared to cope with everything and so for whatever one necessarily thinks of the moral worthiness of course there needs to be legislation in place which can address it so just as much as we might denigrate uh the the trump situation versus uh, black lives matter or whatever one still needs legislation in place. So, for example, you know, I, I take it that you were, would be, have been glad for strong legislation to stop people breaking into uh, the Capitol building. It's the same kind of legislation which you need in, in place here, whether or not it's for uh, Black Lives Matter or right-winging extremists or whatever. Ultimately, I, I, do, I do dispute what you say about um, the, the, the nature of the Black Lives Matter protest. If you take a closer look at those stories, the vast majority of, sort of violent outbreaks was the simultaneous All Lives Matter protests and the statue protectors. And the vast majority of the Black Lives Matter protests 
were peaceful, animated, yes, passionate, yes, but but peaceful. You know that. So you you had a series of actions from my memory on the first weekend where you have peaceful protest, but yes, where damage to property was done, you know, where you get this Churchill was a racist spray paint. Then weekend number two, where there's a second weekend of actions, you have a series of sort of statue protectors um, sort of converging on London and protecting statues that had already been boarded up. And and it was those groups that, after being asked to disperse, where the vast majority of those separate sets of actions were. The civil unrest is placed as a response to Black Lives Matter, which, of course, it is because those counter protesters don't like Churchill being described as a racist. You know, that's a separate conversation. So, for instance, glue yourself to a commuter train. You should be arrested because, you know, that's criminal damage. And um, for all the problems that protests bring up, there are already protections put in place. It's there to protect the, the government narrative, perhaps more than it is there to protect the poor, innocent bystanders of these violent and disruptive protests, which I, I don't accept is necessarily how most of them are carried out. Well, I mean, we certainly could get into a historical debate over you know, how much or, or whether or not incidents happened at any of these protests or, or why they happened. Um, I don't think we need to go down, down that route. But what I do think can be said is that even if the incidents themselves are, by comparison, only small in relation to the much greater number of people, insofar as they happen, they are quite serious in themselves. And they, for whatever reason they've happened, and by whoever they happen or are caused by, they cause a lot of damage to people. And it's also the responsibility of the government to to protect citizens as against other citizens. So, and I'm not saying any particular protest is morally worthy. I'm just saying insofar as we might receive them as being morally worthy or under the sound of them to be, you still need a, to protect other people as against the actions caused by those who support those causes. Deepak, I'm keen to get uh, final input from you because you've, you've sat back and listened to, to, to Guy and I. I've really, I was really enjoying out. the chat. That's why I thought it was great. <laughs> um, why, why, don't, why don't you give us a, a final word? No, I just, I mean, my, I, I, I get Hector's point that he made at the end there about sort of the government's message staying secure and sort of like just stamping out any voices that express a different view i mean the the one example i i when i read this bill the first thing that came up to me that as as well as this um the whim of the home secretary was the where it where it actually refers to may result in serious disruption to the activities and organization i mean that pretty much just rules out any protest outside parliament i mean yeah anything anywhere and outside parliament because it's disruptive straight away as soon as it makes any sort of noise and then leaving it open like that might and guy has a great point in terms of we need flexibility we need a bit of openness with some of the terms and they may be regarded as vague but you do need that too so my view on it is it is very vague i kind of understand why it needs to be vague at some point I don't necessarily trust this government with vague terms, and that's my summary on it. <laughs> I, I wonder, though, just, just a quick question to Deepak. Would you feel differently if there was a different government in charge? If the, if the Labour government was in charge, would you be happier with it? If they were putting forward this legislation, would you be happier Probably with it? Probably not. I mean, I don't think... I, I think it would take one hell of a high-quality, trustworthy government with all everything in check and running smoothly... Uh, which I've never experienced in my lifetime, um, for this to be okay. I mean, and and the problem is... And legislation anyway is perfect. Yeah, exactly, so even if exactly. That that's what I mean. Was, so, so I, I, I mean, I don't think I'd be happy with this either way. I think my point is I don't think I would be happy with this, and I'm not. And I'm just 
extra unhappy with it because of the current government. I think that's probably my, my best summary. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that, Deepak, because um, <laughs> the, the, the personality politics does somewhat un, uh, sort of unargue sort of un your main point. So, um, no, I, I think, I think um, ultimately matters of public order and what is mm. right and what is right, it should be a matter mm. of legislation, mm. not left mm. up to the whim of a single politician mm, or a secretary. single department. I think ultimately. So let's finish on uh, let's finish on a quick question then each. Really really quick fire answers. Uh, do you think the legislation as stands is fit for use and in a sentence if yes why if no why not but one sentence. So guy I think the legislation needs tightening, but that's generally the situation at this point in a bill's reading anyway. And I think that will be achieved through the House of Lords and committee stages. And hopefully we'll see a, a bit more definitional use being put in there. Uh, Deepak? Scrap it, bin the whole thing. No one is talking. When you've been the bill, bill been the parliament as well. <laughs> bin the whole thing. Um, no public order legislation at all. No, I, I mean, I, I mean uh, guy's spot on. I mean, I think it just needs, it needs tidying up, basically. I mean, I think it's just, and uh, Hector's point of it, um, reading like a first draft, I think mean, that's probably my final thoughts on it. It just needs, needs sorting out. A, a first draft year six sat story. <laughs> True. Yeah. No, I know, I know. <laughs> You've both pretty much agreed. Um, it's not perfect, but something like, and, and I, as the centrist, who has the most moderate views, apparently. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's totally unfit for purpose and it should go back to the drawing board. At the end of every week, we enjoy doing something called, we have a feature called The Final Thought, where it's a fact, a joke, an observation, whatever it may be, uh, just to end after some heavy conversation on a slightly lighter note. So, Guy, what is your ending thought for the week? Right, well, I've got another Origins one for everyone, and that is the origins of the crest of the City of London. Now, I don't know how well you all know it, but essentially the crest is much along the same lines as the St George's flag, but in the top left corner there is a sword. And, you know, if you want to think that's a bit, a bit unusual, why, why would you have that added into the normal St George's crest? Well, it's because when Julius Caesar allegedly uh, when he invaded Great Britain, he fought with the local king or, or uh, chieftain of uh, Londinium, as it, as it would then become. It was uh, Luddum or something like that uh, back then. Um, and Caesar's sword got stuck in the shield of that chieftain, who then as a war trophy took it back to Londinium and displayed it to his people. And as a sign of the power of London, ever since Caesar's sword has been in its shield. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. Oh, gosh, we do love a bit of history here. We do love a bit of history here. So um, mine's another origins one, but it's an origin of a word, origin of the name of the podcast. So as we mentioned before, we are rationality. And I thought I'd give you the definition and the etymology. So... Uh, rationality is defined as the quality of being based on or in accordance with reason or logic, which is what we're all aiming to do. 
no dull rhetoric, all about reason and logic. Um, so it comes from the Latin, uh, which is rationalis, uh, which is reason. Um, and, and that's where we decided we'd take the name from so that we can exchange our views on a reasonable and logical basis rather than getting too excited by rhetoric. Deepak, what about you? Uh, well, I'd love to go first next time because you guys come up with these ah. banters and I'm just there with these. Uh, but yeah, I just then it, one that's linked with the date, which is the 20th of March, and also we've mentioned Cuba earlier. Um, on this day, um, five years ago, 2016, Obama was the first uh, president to visit Cuba since 1928. Wow. So I thought that was an interesting fact. Uh, first sitting president, anyway, since college to actually visit Cuba. Um, since 1928, so I thought that was quite interesting. Oh, in fact, on this day, I love it on this day. I love it on this day. So yes, recording on Saturday, 20th of March. So you said what? So that's five years ago today. Obama went to Cuba. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, um... first president <laughs> since 1928. There well, you um... go. Well, I, we hope you enjoyed the show. Um, thanks very much to Guy and Deepak. And um, yeah, fellas, let's uh, say goodbye to the listeners. Thanks very much, everyone. Yeah. Thank you. Cheerio. Bye. like to get in touch then please do uh, you can find me on twitter at at hectic kidwell and you can fire in any questions you'd like us to answer or leave us any feedback thanks very much bye